You're listening to Policy, Guns and Money, the Aspie podcast with me, Olivia Nelson. Welcome back to Aspie's special series on Australia-Indonesia relations since the fall of Suharto. In this episode, Dr. David Engel and Hilary Mansour speak to Greg Moriarty, who was ambassador to Indonesia from 2010 until 2014. Their conversation explores Indonesia's foreign policy under SBY, the bilateral economic relationship, and cooperation in the area of counterterrorism. They also discuss some of the challenges in their relationship, such as the banning of live cattle exports and people smuggling. Greg, welcome to ASPE and thanks for participating in this podcast. You returned to Jakarta in October 2010, and I say returned because unlike any of your predecessors, it was your second time in the embassy, and you'd served there from 1999 to 2002. I'm wondering how those experiences affected your thinking about Indonesia as you arrived back in Jakarta and took up your role. Well, thanks, David and Hilary. It's great to have this opportunity to talk to you, and thank you to ASPE for organising this series. It's a very important one. I did arrive in 1999 after the fall of Suharto the previous year and I think I was struck by how much the country was going through a great deal of turmoil and anxiety, the emergence of new political forces, the reshaping of the country. There were at that stage a number of Indonesians who were worried about the country's future as a unitary state and while we might now think back and say, oh, well, that those those fears were over-egged or over-emphasised, that doesn't diminish the fact that a number of Indonesians were very worried at that particular point in time about whether the country could hold together. And then so the East Timor set of issues played into that, but there were, there were real challenges in Aceh in other parts of Eastern Indonesia and a, a number of micro-nationalist movements were emerging, whether the new democratic Indonesia would be able to uh, accommodate all of those was the topic. The financial crisis had pushed millions of Indonesians into poverty, but the end of, of the certainty of the Suharto period as well it unleashed a number of you know, political forces which nobody was exactly sure how they were going to be managed. So when I came back to Indonesia, I was struck by in some ways the normality of Indonesia, that uh, heady uh, sense of great tectonic political forces, cultural forces had been subsided to a certain extent, but there were still a lot of unresolved issues in the, the politics. But it made me realise that, that Australians, it's important to understand the enormous complex history that modern Indonesia has gone through and that it's not all that long ago that it transitioned from that sort of Suharto period to what we see now. President Yudhoyono had doing a lot of transformation, but it also restored, I think, a sense of normalcy to the presidency after what had been a a turbulent period. He was, I think, quite consultative in the way that he ran his government and there were a number of ministers that had strong connections with Australia. So we were able to prosecute our interests in useful ways. 
You've mentioned just now a sense of stability that SBA or Sosilo Bambang Yudhiyono might have brought to that consolidating period in Indonesian democracy. Your tenure as ambassador coincided with the final years of SBA's second term. How would you describe Indonesian foreign policy during SBA's years? Well, of course, throughout that period, Indonesia continued to pursue its free and active foreign policy. President Yudhiyono, I think, was motivated in some ways to do some things differently. He was conscious that Indonesia's position in ASEAN had been displaced a little, not displaced by another state, but Indonesia had withdrawn into itself a little. And so he was keen to reassert an Indonesian leadership role in ASEAN. Uh, Martin Natalagawa was the foreign minister. He worked with President Yudhoyono to develop an Indonesian concept of dynamic equilibrium, which was pursued with some enthusiasm, not always uniformly, but it was interesting to see how that played out. Indonesia was keen to assert a leadership role, but it was also very conscious of the great tectonic changes in, I think, strategic alignment in the region and wished to respond to these in a way which was not confrontational. So the concept of dynamic equilibrium was designed to allow power shifts in the region to occur so long as they did not result in friction. So it was uh, how to accommodate these things where Indonesia would play a role. But that's easier to say than to do. And I think President Yudhoyono still found it quite difficult to reassert that Indonesian role in ASEAN that had been lost, in my view. There were challenges in ASEAN on a couple of occasions where Foreign Minister Natalagawa was, at President Yudhoyono's request, got very heavily involved in trying to re-establish a consensus within ASEAN. And Foreign Minister Natalagawa and the President both would say, ASEAN cannot claim centrality if it is not prepared to earn it and to deserve it. And I think that that is what they were conscious of the need for Indonesia to actually deliver and to take on some of those challenges. But he was interested in Australia in a way in which few Indonesian presidents have been. I think he consciously thought of Australia more often than a number of his fellow presidents. He was interested in Australia, wanted to develop that relationship. So I mentioned in particular President Yudhoyono's interest in international peacekeeping, which was an area where he was keen to do more with Australia, and also his concern to promote a view of mainstream or moderate Islam. Some of those aspirations, President Yudhoyono's aspirations, failed to be met during his presidency, but Indonesia had certainly, it was no longer retreating from the international role that it had historically claimed in in ASEAN. President Yudhoyono did manage to put Indonesia on the stage in an important way. His engagement with Australia as well, he looked for opportunities where he could. There were challenges, of course, in the bilateral relationship, but he did look for opportunities to work with Australia. Well, speaking of aspirations and speaking of challenges, 
I'm sure one of your aspirations and certainly one of your priorities was to boost the commercial relationship between our countries. But that became a challenge pretty quickly because in your first year, we saw Australia banning live cattle exports to Indonesia because of an expose on animal cruelty in Indonesian abattoirs. To what extent was this a pivotal moment in our bilateral relationship? And what lesson did you take from this for how Australia should manage such issues with Indonesia? Well, David, it certainly was a very pivotal moment. And it, I think it sent shockwaves in both the Australian system and the Indonesian system. It showed in some ways that the chasm or the gulf between impressions of each other, that's not to make any excuse for some of the appalling practices that were unveiled and a number of Indonesians were quite appalled by them as well. But there was a perception in some quarters in Australia that unless stunning was uniformly used in Indonesia, unless cattle were going to be slaughtered in modern facilities that somehow the trade couldn't be sustained. A number of protectionists in Indonesia, including the Agriculture Minister Suswono, used this live cattle dispute as a way of reinforcing agricultural self-sufficiency as a driver in Indonesia. They had a declared policy of wanting to reach self-sufficiency with beef production and the Australia's actions reinforced the ability and the determination of some Indonesians to drive for that self-sufficiency policy. So I think it told us something about different ways that we perceive issues. I think it also showed me that in order to work through that crisis, personal relationships were really important between some of our ministers and leaders, that they, that it is very difficult to put those relationships in place during a crisis. The value of diplomacy from our political leaders, the need for our political leaders to visit Indonesia, to develop relationships with their counterparts during stable times so that when issues need to be managed, when crises do arise from time to time, you have those channels and a trusting relationship to be able to to work them. But it certainly impacted on trade for a number of months and it spilled into other issues. You mentioned earlier that SBY had a real interest in moderate Islam, and I'd just like to return to this topic briefly. Um, your first stint in Jakarta had coincided with the earliest attacks of the then still unknown Jamaat Islamiyah. But by 2012, the then Prime Minister Julia Gillard and others attended the Bali bombing's 10-year anniversary in Denpasar. What did that event say about Australia and Indonesia's shared security interests and our cooperation in the field of anti-terrorism? Well, it's loomed as a large issue for a long period of time now, but I do recall those initial attacks in Indonesia and about the cooperation networks, the intelligence sharing networks were triggered, but we were all struggling to understand what this was, whether it was domestic, what was the agenda, a number of the connections with Afghanistan were not clear at that early stages. The ideological inspiration of Al-Qaeda and those movements 
we were aware that there were some in Indonesia who were obviously attracted to that ideology, but we were less clear about the organisational connections, the personal connections. So over that period of time, that thickening of the intelligence and security cooperation, I think, was an incredible success. I think as well, there was a challenge for the Indonesian political class because... Of course, during the Suharto period, a lot of Muslim activists had been persecuted. That was clear at various times. President Suharto had seen them as a threat. There was a sense in a democratic, more open Indonesia that these different voices of Islam needed to be accommodated rather than dealt with in a security-heavy approach. How to deal with that politically was a live issue during my first posting to Indonesia where the political expression of Islam, parties were allowed to register, which had Islam as their basis, that didn't accept Panchasila as necessarily the, the core political philosophy. There was a sense of, well, this is an important way of expressing democratic feelings, but where, does, where are the appropriate limits around lawfulness, around acceptance of Indonesia as a multi-ethnic, multi-religious sort of state where Islam is predominant, but what is the appropriate protections for minorities? And then during my second posting as ambassador, some of these issues were very important because there was a sense that some of these groups, there was a fracturing in some of the militant groups, fracturing among some of the terrorist groups that a sense that yes the state shouldn't be coy about the need to protect all indonesians by taking quite serious action against groups that advocated and used violence the the right balance was always i think a question but for australia the operational cooperation which continues and which was a really important part of the agenda when I was ambassador. I'm very proud of what Australian agencies did to support their Indonesian colleagues during that time. Well, another very important part of the agenda during your time and an issue that had predated your arrival back there was people smuggling. Perhaps the pivotal moment was the election of the Abbott government in September of 2013 which ushered in significant policy changes such as Operation Sovereign Borders and the so-called turnbacks. How did the Indonesians view these developments and what impact did they have on relations during your time? Well, it was an issue throughout my period as ambassador and had been an issue during the first period that when I was there when the the Tampa incident occurred. But certainly Australian advocacy of people smuggling as a shared concern between Australia and Indonesia was accepted by a certain number of the Indonesian policy elite, but that perception was not widely shared. Indonesia had a preference to multilateralise human trafficking and people smuggling issues and we had the Bali process which made some very useful progress but it didn't result in the concrete operational 
outcomes that Australia and some Indonesians were seeking. There was a perception, I think, that Australia was trying to make people smuggling an Indonesian problem, that Australia wanted Indonesia to solve our people smuggling problem, that that perception was not held broadly in the security forces who were worried about people smuggling for their own internal security and and other reasons, and I would argue also in Indonesia. And they would also point to policy settings in Australia which they regarded as putting the sugar on the table. And a number of people, when we would advocate on people smuggling operational and other cooperative activity, would say, if you don't want the ants to come, take the sugar off the table. And, of course, I think Australian governments did do that during the period of the Gillard government. There was a a toughening up of Australia's settings, but certainly after the election of Mr Abbott, Australia's robust tactics caused quite a degree of difficulty in the Indonesian system. In the parliament, the government was criticised for not being more robust in pushing back against Australia. It was seen by many as an affront to Indonesia's sovereignty. It impacted and soured some of our relations with our security force partners who were keen to help but also shared that broader political concern that this was Australia taking unilateral strong action without thinking through Indonesia's perceptions and concerns. But there was also, I think, in some, particularly amongst the security community, a sense that this pipeline did need to be disrupted, that Indonesia was certainly vulnerable to a number of security risks if this pipeline continued uninterrupted. There was some consensus that operational activity needed to be taken to disrupt the flows, but managing that and managing the perception that Australia was seeking to take advantage of Indonesia, that was a perception that was widely held at certain stages in the parliament and therefore trying to get that operational cooperation was was difficult. You faced another challenge in late 2013 when media reports emerged alleging that Australia had been spying on Indonesian leaders, including the president himself. And in response, Indonesia recalled its ambassador and put much of our bilateral cooperation on hold. But eventually, the two countries signed the Australia-Indonesia Joint Agreement on a Code of Conduct, which not only entailed a commitment not to use intelligence to harm the interests of the other, but even detailed avenues for bilateral cooperation on intelligence. So what did this incident tell you about Australia-Indonesia affairs and the place of diplomacy? Well, it was another one of those issues where the security communities in both countries saw quite significant value in continuing full and broad-ranging cooperation, but there was a political challenge for the Indonesian government which it needed to respond to, which was genuine. It was in some ways quite deeply felt. The allegations that were made did offend Indonesian nationalists and offended quite a wide range of the Indonesian elite. I know President Yudhoyono was quite concerned, quite hurt and angry at the allegations. I know he directed a wide range of cooperation with Australia to be temporarily suspended. 
But he was also very concerned to make sure that this, as he described it, he wanted to restore normalcy to the relationship with Australia while he was still in office. And so the visit by Mr Abbott to Batam, there were very good and frank discussions there. Again, some very good work from Foreign Minister Julie Bishop, again working with Foreign Minister Nathalie Lagawa, and some really important work on the back channels between members and former members of the Australian military and the Indonesian military, the intelligence communities in both countries. So I think the diplomacy was very important, but it's also diplomacy can't be conducted outside of the sentiment in countries. Eventually, we have to recognise that Indonesia has politics, which will impact on how it, how it can behave and how it can engage with us under certain circumstances. But the Indonesians also understand we have politics as well and there are sentiments in Australia, particular issues that galvanise Australians which won't necessarily always be to the likings of Indonesia. So it's important for our political leaders and our diplomats to realise that they will need to operate in a framework where those factors are understood and taken into account. But those important institutional networks between our intelligence communities, our military, our police forces, those networks and relationships are an ongoing benefit to both countries, both in terms of advocacy for policy positions as well as the operational cooperation. I think that's a nice segue into the next issue I wanted to discuss, Greg, which is your abiding interest in Eastern Indonesia. And it's a deeply personal one. I know your father served in the war there and your own personal interest in Papua and Melanesia in general is, is really acute. How important to Australian interests are developments in that part of Indonesia and how should Australia pursue those interests given those Indonesian sensitivities around them? Mm. Well, David, that is a really important issue because I think Indonesia's future success as a united, stable country does depend in some ways on how it reconciles the various cultural, ethnic, religious communities that it has within its borders. And at some times, the authority of Jakarta has been seen as suppressing local aspirations, economically exploitative, culturally insensitive at best, and sometimes quite harsh in terms of dealing with some of these local expressions. But I think from my perspective, there is a sense of Indonesianness that applies across the country in some places stronger than others, but I genuinely believe, personally believe, that a united, stable, prosperous Indonesia is best for the people of that country as well as for Australia and Indonesia's other neighbours. How the formula and the ebbs and flows of politics that allow it to achieve that unity while allowing appropriate vent to some of these aspirations. That That is going to be an ongoing work for the leadership of Indonesia, I think, for many, many years to come. 
finding the right formula for a unitary state that allows regional aspiration, that recognises culture, that allows for those local expressions of, of things that are important to communities, that they are big challenges in any country. And for a country as geographically spread and as ethnically diverse as Indonesia, I think they will be an ongoing challenge. I do think the actions of, of political leaders and individuals can make a difference. I remember during my first posting there, the situation in Ambon was horrific. There was sectarian bloodletting. Towns were divided. There were barricades up between suburbs in major towns. People were afraid to go from the market in one part of the town into another. Horrendous violence with some manipulation from people who thought that it was uh, useful to sort of emphasise the sectarian nature of those challenges. It took many, many years, but when I was ambassador, I was able to go back there to meet community leaders. I was able to participate in a memorial service at the War Cemetery there, again with people from different religious communities being able to work together in harmony. It doesn't mean that all of those challenges had gone away, but people had looked into the abyss and had stepped back from it. And so I think in eastern Indonesia, where some of these challenges are quite profound and in the Papuan provinces very difficult to manage, there does need to be goodwill and a willingness to sort of experiment, I think, a little politically with what might work. But I've not accepted the view that somehow the situation in eastern Indonesia can be characterised as Javanese colonialism. I just do not accept that. I've been in places in Papua where I've seen some of the most committed people to Papuan welfare are Javanese. People working in hospitals, people working in NGOs, people working, and not just Javanese, people from all over Indonesia seeking to make the lives of Papuans better. Certainly, you can point to the opposite as well, but I do believe that a unitary state is the best for the people of eastern Indonesian provinces, including the, the Papuan provinces. Looking back on your experience as ambassador now and what these pivotal moments taught you about Indonesia, how should Australia be dealing with its northern neighbour, especially in terms of getting beyond the transactional to a sustained, warm relationship? And as the Secretary of Defence, where do you see possibilities for enhancing our defence cooperation with Indonesia? Well, I think it is very important for Australians, more Australians, to try and understand Indonesia, its history, its culture, its place in our strategic environment. I would say we need to have empathy, but we should remain very clear-eyed about the prosecution of our interests. To empathise does not mean that one necessarily sympathises or agrees. Again, on a number of issues, it's important to have respectful deep conversations with the Indonesian leadership, but we will not share a world view. We are very different countries. But we should look to cooperate where we have common interests. And I think that in future years, geostrategically, there will be some areas where we have increasingly common interests. But we shouldn't 
seek to pretend that there won't be areas where we have differences. I think we need to be pragmatic and patient. We shouldn't always be seeking to cast Indonesia as the defining relationship in Australia's engagement in the region. There will be from time to time challenges, even crises in the relationship. It's about how we manage those, having the diplomacy, the relationships, the ability, the ballast to be able to manage some of those challenges. Indonesia has a sense of itself and I think that that will continue to grow and to evolve. It won't necessarily think about Australia as much as we would like it to. Our interests won't always resonate with the Indonesian decision-making elite as much as we would hope that they would, but that doesn't mean that we should not try. I think it's important to understand that Indonesia will remain in some ways, ambivalent about Western power. It certainly appreciates its relationships with Western countries, including Australia, the United States. It seeks balance, but it won't necessarily share the same view. Australia is much more comfortable with a balance of power in the Indo-Pacific, which has existed in large part since the Second World War, although there'd be some in Southeast Asia who would who would have a different view about the benevolent nature of the regional order. And many Indonesians will be more ambivalent about that. They will certainly want stability and balance, but our interests in Indonesia's will often overlap, but not always, and we need to appreciate that they will have a different worldview and they will continue to hold those perspectives quite deeply. But we should look to cooperate wherever we can. We should look to manage irritations when they arise and we should look for temperate comments on both sides when there are these issues to manage. And we should prosecute our interests in ways which are designed to deliver the effect we want not prosecute our interests in ways which are generating of publicity or of commentary that plays to prejudices in both countries. Greg, many thanks for your time. Again. Pleasure, Dave. That's all we have time for today on Policy, Guns and Money. We look forward to bringing you another episode soon. Thanks for listening.